Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. Back in episode 121, Professor Leah Glazer and her history students at Central Connecticut State University told us the history and legends of 15 of Connecticut's most famous trees. Along with the famous Charter Oak and several other legendary oak trees, we learned of cedar, cypress, pear, cherry, and sycamore trees, each of which played a memorable role in our history. Ironically, however, not one of those stories was about a tree that for over 2,000 years was the tallest, largest, and most omnipresent tree in all Connecticut. It's a tree for which a hundred hills, countless streets, and at least one Connecticut town was named. A tree whose nuts we sing about on the holidays, and a tree which once helped frame our houses, shape our furniture, fence our livestock, make tracks for our trains, and hold our utility lines. I'm talking about the American chestnut tree, once Connecticut and eastern North America's keystone arboreal species. Today I talk with Jack Swatt, president of the Connecticut chapter of the American Chestnut Foundation, about the long history and importance of the American chestnut, the devastation brought about by the historic chestnut blight, and the amazing efforts by scientists today to restore this functionally extinct species to its former role in Connecticut's woodlands. When Connecticut was a land of giants, coming up now on Grading the Nutmeg. If you know where to look, it's easy to find proof that Connecticut was once a land of giants. These giants were everywhere, on the hillsides and in the towns, on farms and in cities. They were useful giants too. People welcomed them into their homes, invited their offspring to dinner, and they generally thought of them as vital and deeply rooted members of their communities. Yet in less than 50 years, all of these giants vanished. Like the Martian invaders in Orson Welles' famous broadcast, The War of the Worlds, the giants were laid low by an alien disease that brought the species to the brink of extinction. And while evidence of their former presence is everywhere in Connecticut, today, the giants, almost all of them, are gone. These giants were American chestnut trees, which for centuries were the most important trees in Connecticut's woodlands, a keystone species that shaped the arboreal ecosystems of Connecticut and all the Eastern United States. My guest today is Jack Swatt, president of the Connecticut chapter of the American Chestnut Foundation, who's gonna talk with us about the history and importance of the American Chestnut, the work of the American Chestnut Foundation here in Connecticut, and the astonishing developments that might just mean this functionally extinct once keystone species may soon return to our woodlands as a giant once again. Jack, welcome to Grading the Nutmeg. Am I exaggerating when I say that giant American chestnut trees once covered Connecticut? You're not exaggerating, Derek. It was basically the most dominant tree in the uh, eastern forests all the way from New England all the way down through the southern Appalachians. The, historically, they've looked at a lot of censuses of some of the trees uh, from some of the early foresters, and they said it could be anywhere from one to four to one to five. One out of every five trees was an American chestnut. 
They also grew to immense size. There are records of trees that were like nine feet in diameter at some point, massive size. And they were even called the redwoods of the East. As a historian, and I think this is true of a lot of people, when you think about the past, you try to imagine it and project yourself back into it. And it's just nearly impossible for me to conceive of what the world looked like, what Connecticut looked like when there were all these chestnuts everywhere. Yeah, I, yeah. I did find a place, though, that gave me some amazing insights into it. It's a place called the Connecticut Digital Archive, and it's an online site where museums all across the state post well, images from their collections and documents and things. And somebody told me you should go in there and do a search on the word chestnut. So I did. And I was astonished. Dozens and dozens of photographs came up from the 19th century of buildings and towns and homes and forests and places with these tall, giant chestnut trees in them. That uh, Some of them were blooming. The, they were in flower and they had those kind of conicals. At least they looked conical from, from the images. It gave me just a you know, a little glimpse of what an impressive figure the chestnut trees must have been when they were in full flower or when they yeah. flourished. Today, probably get an idea of that um, at uh, Connecticut Agriculture Experiment Stations, probably um, the biggest repository of hybrid chestnut trees in the nation. They've done a lot of the early experiments on hybrid trees uh, right after the blight came through. And so they have orchards there of not only Chinese and American hybrids, but Japanese American hybrids, you know, Chinese, Japanese, Chinese European. They were searching for a way to find uh, blight resistance in some of the early hybrid trees. Some Talk of those trees are that. not like Americans. So you can see a lot of the uh, trees flowering there, but they're not growing the same as the American chestnuts, not as tall and not as big. So you talked about that blight, and I, in the intro, compared it to the blight that killed the aliens in, H in Orson Welles' War of the Worlds. What happened? I mean, the trees were flourishing. They were the dominant, the apex species in Eastern American forests. And then when and what? Well, the, um, around the turn of the uh, 19th century, the late 1890s, people were importing a lot of oriental chestnut trees for either their gardens and uh, also people were trying to do some hybridization, uh, like I mentioned, with the uh, uh, Chinese uh, and American trees to, for agricultural reasons. So trying to breed a, a tree that was more like an orchard tree, which the Japanese and Chinese trees are, with the American tree so that they could produce bigger nuts and uh, trees that they were able to harvest. Uh, with American chestnut trees grown over 100 feet, it's hard to collect nuts from them until they fall on the ground and then they're competing with wildlife. So I believe that uh, led to a lot of the uh, importation. So there and was an effort to make the trees smaller with bigger nuts because yeah. the nuts are the, I mean, we all know the song chestnuts roasting on an open fire, right? So right. Yep. chestnuts were a popular food. Yep. Uh, before the blight came through, especially in the Appalachian regions, you know, there were so many chestnut trees in the forest. And in the fall, they would uh, annually produce a big crop of nuts. I kind of related to uh, if ever anyone has ever been walking out in the fall when there's a big acorn crop and you're just literally walking over acorns. That's what it used to be like every year with chestnuts. Yeah, so we had the, one um, of those a couple of years ago in Connecticut, yeah. I think, just this huge yeah. mass year for acorns. And I yeah. can't imagine if there were every year you had that kind of tree fall. It almost became like a second crop for some of the farmers to go out and collect all those nuts. And they used to, to ship them off by the, you know, the train load cars full to the cities where they were roasted for, uh, for the holidays. As a One of the things that got me really interested in chestnuts 
I live in a house in Columbia, Eastern Connecticut town that was mm-hmm. built by my sixth great grandfather. So it's one of these 1750 Connecticut country colonials. We were remodeling a bathroom and we took down, there actually were a couple of walls in these things. And we took down the, the first wall and found behind it some beautiful panels made out of chestnut. And the width of these boards was beyond anything that you could buy in a lumber yard today. They were, the grain was straight. The wood was beautiful. It was more than two yeah. feet wide, each of the panels. And it turned out to be chestnut. And I thought, my God. How big were these trees that they could get that kind of lumber from them? Yeah, chestnut was a very uh, important source of lumber in the early days, too, uh, especially in the, the colonial periods there. It's like we touched on how you know, frequently they were found, how, uh, how numerous they were, uh, but also the wood is rot resistant, too. So anybody who used the, the lumber to build their houses and their barns, um, you know, the wood wouldn't rot. So a lot of the farms that are uh, barns that are still standing today are most likely made of chestnut. So same with some of the houses there too. And then, then later, I guess that because of this rot resistance, they also used them once the railroads came into play, they became a great source of railroad ties. And then later yeah. I would assume telephone poles and utility poles, but then this blight comes. Yeah. How yeah. quickly did it wipe the trees out? Yeah. It was first found to be infecting American trees, actually at the Bronx Zoo in 1904. They recognized right away that it was a fungus and tried doing everything they could to uh, kill it with the fungicides they had available at that time. They found that it uh, quickly spread. It spreads from uh, spores that are blown through the wind. Within 10 years, by like 1914, it already spread throughout southern New England and was starting to work its way down through Pennsylvania and Maryland. And then eventually, you know, over the next couple of decades, it eventually traveled all the way down through the southern Appalachian. And they even tried cutting down trees for miles, trying to prevent its spread. But obviously, the spores being windborne spread further than they were able to keep it contained. One of the things that, that I found when I was researching to do this podcast was that Connecticut's first state forest, which was set up in the early 1900s, it, it's the um, Meshomazic State Forest in Portland, was actually established by Walter Mulford, who was the country's first state forester. He wanted to show how you could take relatively small forests and manage them profitably, actually take woodlands and turn them into a real economic center. So he bought some 600 acres near Portland and set out to manage it scientifically for production. He established the place in 1903. In 1922, talking about that early experiment, the Connecticut State Forest Commission wrote, Under any conditions which could have been predicted, the growth would have accumulated by this time so that a large crop of chestnut ties and poles would be available and the forest would be on a profit-producing basis. Unfortunately, it said, the chestnut blight upset these plans, and between 1910 and 1920, practically all of the chestnuts died. This probably constituted at least 60% of all the stand, so the loss from the disease more than counterbalanced the growth of the whole forest. Mm -hmm. So this first experiment, state experiment in showing the value of forest management, was cut short by the chestnut blight. 
Yeah, it was truly devastating. Yeah, it just wiped out all the trees all the way throughout the whole range there. Um, it, you can it, imagine it, all the people who relied on it as, you know, the farmers even too, collecting the nuts. That was a uh, almost like a second income for them. So it was devastating for them as well. We're going through something that I, I think has got to be similar to that right now with the emerald ash borer and the, the yep. ash tree die-off. But, yeah. you know, ash trees, they're, they're beautiful, large trees, they're great firewood, but they're not 60% of the forest cover in Connecticut. So that chestnut disease must have been terrible. And the, the effect of all this dead wood in the forest really created a problem in the 20s with forest fires. That was a, a very serious concern. In 1922, they had a terrible forest fire season. And here's what the Forest Commission said about that. This spring season was the worst fire season the state has experienced since 1915. They had 1,005 fires that burned 79,000 acres. And what they noted about the fires is that they were, quote, of unprecedented heat and ferocity. They said that was caused by three factors, the dry weather and high winds, kind of things we've been getting around here a lot of lately, then dead wood broken off the previous winter by ice storms, but most significantly, they said it was caused by a large amount of dead chestnut. This dead chestnut burned like tinder, they said. And in several instances, bits of burning bark were carried long distances across state highways, rivers, and even reservoirs, making it almost impossible to stop fires. That's a state forester in 1922. I'd never even considered the impact of that dead wood, but it must have been. Just horrible. You can imagine what we might be going through with all the, especially in the eastern part of the state there, where they've had the gypsy moths uh, having a lot of oak die off and the ash and species now too that are, are under threat. Yeah. Did people realize how bad the blight was immediately or did it take a long time for them to understand that this was going to be fatal or near fatal to the chestnuts? No, I think they knew pretty quickly. Uh, like I said, as soon as they found it, they tried uh, using fungicides to try to treat it. And they recognized how quickly it spread from uh, from the Bronx Zoo in the New York City there. So there were a lot of programs underway. Like I said, they were trying to do, you know, cutting the trees down for, for miles, you know, and, and trying everything they could to prevent it. I think they knew right from the start that this was going to be something devastating. Now, what people say today about the American chestnut is that it's functionally extinct. Uh, yeah. What does that mean that something is functionally yeah. extinct? Well, basically, the, the fungus kills the trunk of the tree. The fungus secretes a chemical called oxalic acid uh, in high concentrations and that kills the bark. And then the fungus eats the dead bark. And eventually it gets underneath the layer of the bark and encircles the underneath the cambium layer and girdles the tree but it doesn't affect the roots at all. So it kills the trunk of the tree, but not the roots. Chestnut is surviving today because of its immense um, root systems. It keeps sprouting up new sprouts. The sprouts get to be about maybe, you know, 20 to 30 feet tall, and then the blight kills them and, you know, knocks the trunk back down to the ground again, and then they start over re-sprouting again. So in a constant cycle of re-sprouting and dying, 
and re-sprouting. But these um, sprouts very, that are coming up, they are from those original chestnut trees that were yep, killed correct. a century yeah. ago. Fascinating. Yep. People ask me how old some of the trees are that we find growing from sprouts. And my answer is over 100 years old because the blight first came here, that's over 120 years now. Yeah. Once they realized that this was an existential threat to the American chestnut, did groups begin then to try to find workarounds, something that would save the tree, or did that come later? They knew that the blight was here and that they, they couldn't get rid of it. And they were trying to find ways that um, they could breed resistance into the American chestnut. Um, they knew that the Chinese chestnut and Japanese chestnut were resistant to the blight because that's where the, the blight evolved. Those trees evolved with them. Some of the uh, people who belong to the American Nut Growers uh, Association convinced the Kinetic Agriculture Experiment Station to look into hybridization to see if they can find a way to combat the blight. So one of the early um, tree uh, breeders there, Dr. Arthur Graves, he had did a lot of extensive work working with different hybrids and looking for trees that showed American character, but still retain the blight resistance. And there, as I mentioned, a are, lot of those trees are still surviving today. There are other trees like the Chinese chestnut tree that are resistant to the blight, but they don't look like the American chestnut tree. Yeah, correct. The Chinese and the Japanese trees, as I mentioned earlier, were more like orchard trees. So they would have a hard time competing in a forest since they only grew to maybe like 50 or 60 feet tall. You know, in order to compete with the other trees, like the American chestnut would have to grow over 100 feet tall to compete for the sun, the upper canopy. And that's actually how our foundation uh, got started was that we took some of those early hybrid trees that did show good American character, but we figured we needed to back cross it several more generations with American trees. So um, our founder, Dr. Charles Burnham, you know, developed a plan where if we back cross trees through three generations with American trees, we'd end up with a tree Actually, the trees he started with actually came from Hamden, Connecticut, at the uh, Connecticut Agriculture Experiment Station there. Now, Each when you say backbreeding, what does that mean? That means, like, if you take a hybrid that's Chinese and American, it's 50% Chinese genes and 50% uh, American. But then if you cross it with an, a pure American tree again, then it's 75% American. And if you cross that tree again with another American tree, each time you're increasing the number of American genes. But what they did for each generation, too, was that they tested it for blight resistance so that um, they actually inoculated the bark with different strains of the blight fungus and graded how, how much the, the infection grew. The infection we call a canker. And trees that had very small cankers from those, um, those test infections, we knew had carried some resistance. So we only let trees showing that resistance breed and carry the, on the next generation of of uh, back cross trees. So let me let me make sure I'm getting this because it sounds like something that would take generations to do. You take it, yep. you take a uh, an American chestnut tree before it's infected, cross it, hybrid hybridize it with a Chinese chestnut, kind of crossbreed it or some yeah. other species. Then you keep working your way back into American chestnuts until you get a tree that is mostly American chestnut, but has picked yeah. up, hopefully, well, the disease resistance. Yeah. Well, like I said, we did start off uh, with a little bit of advantage of having some uh, trees that were 75% American at the uh, Connecticut Agriculture Experiment Station. That How many years does steps, it take but... to get to 75% backbred? Is that, is that... Yeah. Well, when that's just two generations. So... Um, those trees had been growing there for years, the ones that we used. Uh, but when we when we do a generation or a back cross program, 
when they're growing in orchards with good sunlight, they can start flowering anywhere from like five to eight years. So it did take several decades. Our foundation started back in 1985. So we're going on to, you know, we're over our 35th year, but getting close to our 40th. But it has been, it, it takes several, you know, several years before, or even uh, close to a decade for each generation. So, And, and so are, is the American Chestnut Foundation now at a point where it's got a, a blight resistant American chestnut tree? How close are they? Yeah, actually, um, with the back crossbreeding program we did, we're finding out it's not as um, uh, easy to do as what we thought. Um, our founder thought there were maybe three or four genes responsible for blight resistance. And what we're finding out is it's more like, you know, maybe 12 to 15. So all that back crossing has diluted the, the Chinese uh, genes in the trees. And it's likely we didn't conserve all the genes necessary for blight resistance. So we are finding some trees that have good blight resistance, but not what we expected. So we're still hoping to continue to breed those trees with other trees showing high levels of blight resistance that we may still develop a tree that shows good blight resistance. Good blight resistance is the, the measure of that, that a tree is not killed by the blight ultimately, or is, yeah. how do you measure it? Um, blight resistance was the early term used, and now we're calling it blight tolerance because we know that the blight is gonna be there. We want trees that can get, they may get infected by the blight, but don't die from it. So that um, a lot of the trees in our program don't have very smooth bark. We almost, we call it like cruddy bark. It shows signs of infection, but the infection has been walled off and scarred and the trees are still surviving. Other things that are coming along too is that um, genetics has come a long way since our, pro, our foundation started. And we're looking at other ways to breed blight resistance into the trees. There's a couple other things that we can use. One of them is called hypovariant. Well, that's not breeding it into the tree, um, but we are hoping to use hypovariolence as a mean to control the blight. Hypovariolence um, is a term meaning that the blight fungus is not as strongly infective as the original strain. And um, actually, some scientists, even uh, the Connecticut Agriculture Experiment Station, were working with this. They found that a virus can actually infect the blight and make it weaker. Um, so there is hope that we can use. Uh, that as a means to help control the blight. But unfortunately, I don't think it's something we can um, use widespread. It only works on a local uh, level. So we can actually inoculate trees with it and help save individual trees. So do you inoculate also, them when, after they've been infected with the blight? Yeah, as soon as you see, um, yep, as soon as you see signs of the blight is the best time to inoculate them. With, uh, so this is kind of like taking our COVID-19 shots and finding out that even yep. if you get the disease, <laughs> it won't be so bad. Exactly. Yep, exactly. It's a very good analogy. Exactly. So, so how did you become involved in this? I developed an interest in the chestnut tree when I found this paneling behind a wall. What, what, yeah. what attracted you? Um, well, I had always learned about the uh, the blight in the chestnut trees. Um, when I was uh, in college, I was working on a farm and uh, the farmer had a chestnut tree that I learned about the story of the blight through him. And eventually when I heard about the Chestnut Foundation, I thought it was a good program, but I didn't get actually uh, much uh, more involved until uh, I found some chestnut trees grown at the Naugatuck State Forest uh, that had been producing nuts. So then I was able to start monitoring them and uh, getting some of the nuts that we can use for breeding. We're also starting to um, form, it's called germplasm conservation orchards now, where the trees that are surviving large enough to be able to flower and produce nuts 
We want to get those nuts and grow them in orchards with other trees from different chestnut parents so that we just keep the genetic diversity of the species going. How do you set up these germplasm orchards? We're trying to plant 10 trees from 10 different mother trees in an acre setting. The blight is still here, so when the trees grow tall enough to flower, there's a better chance that there's a tree nearby uh, offering pollen to it to uh, fertilize the, uh, the, nut, the flowers. So this way here, we'll be cross-pollinating trees from different locations from Connecticut. So in the one orchard, you plant trees from multiple locations. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And has that been going on long enough that you've got a sense of how it's working? Um, we just started our first uh, germplasm conservation orchard uh, about two years ago. So those trees are still you know, pretty small and growing. Like I said, we'll, we'll hopefully be able to use hypovirulence to be able to help those trees keep growing. So we'll still be able to continue to have them continuing to cross and to breed. That sounds exciting. So you, you said, I think when you were first talking about this, that the the American Chestnut Foundation, its original seeds came from the agricultural experiment stations in Connecticut. Correct. Now, yeah. Why was there some some reason related to chestnut blight here that made Connecticut so you know active in this early effort to find a solution? I'm not sure what it was. Like I said, it was just a lot of, you know, people had lost a lot of the chestnut. They just encouraged the scientists here in Connecticut to work on it. Uh, I'm sure there are probably other places that were working on it as well. But, uh, you know, we happen to, you know, continue to save those orchards and continue working on it. Interesting. One of the things that is related to what you were just talking about is this idea of transgenic. What's going on there? Yeah, one of the latest developments that we're uh, hoping to be able to help uh, breed a uh, blight-resistant or blight-tolerant American chestnut, as I explained earlier, the way the blight fungus kills the trees is that it secretes a chemical called oxalic acid. And there are a lot of plants in nature that have a single enzyme that breaks down the oxalic acid. We think that chestnut actually has a multi-enzyme pathway to break down that acid, uh, and that's why it takes so many genes to um, uh, develop the resistance, to carry on resistance. But in the other plants, it's just a single gene. So um, scientists at SUNY ESF, which is um, the Environmental Science and Forestry uh, Division up in Syracuse, New York, developed a, a way where they can take the gene that's responsible for the oxalic oxidase uh, enzyme from wheat, and they transferred into American chestnut germ cells. And when they grew trees from those germ cells and cultured them, they found that the, the trees were able to, uh, to tolerate the, the blight, and they're growing very, uh, very strongly without the blight. And since it's only a single gene, when they produce nuts from those trees, 50% of those nuts will carry the gene with it. So breeding with it and carrying that gene forward uh, would be much easier than the, the backcross program that we're trying to do. Now, is there an easy way to identify a nut that carries the gene and doesn't carry the gene? Or how do you... They, they have developed a simple color metric test where they can just test either a leaf from the seedling, or they've even uh, developed a way that they can just take a small piece of the, um, the, the nut. Um, in the fall and test it for the uh, for the enzyme. That's fascinating. So is that the solution to the problem? That's what we're hoping. It's still early in the, in the process. Since this is considered a GMO, it's got to go through government regulation. The SUNY uh, ESF has been working with it in controlled orchards, where they have to make sure that nothing spreads from the orchards. And uh, they have been able to cross it for a generation or two already. 
they've applied for deregulation with the, uh, the government. Uh, it's kind of a long several year process where they will be able to use it out in open orchards and then we can transfer it or actually we can use it to cross with some of the other American chestnuts that we're um, saving in our GCOs so that we can um, hopefully have a genetically diverse enough population that we may be able one day uh, re replant the forest with uh, this tree. So, so a lot of potential with it. You know, like I said, it's early. We don't know if uh, my, my favorite quotes is in, uh, from Jurassic Park where it's like nature finds a way or life finds a way. Um, you know, the, <laughs> there's always ways that nature is trying to combat any kind of, uh, um, you know, a remedy that you have. So, yeah. um, you know, it's something we got to test to see how long this gene can be expressed through several generations. So, so th the Connecticut chapter of the American Chestnut Foundation kind of does a lot of work to help support yes, yes. this effort to save the chestnuts. Tell us about the organization itself and the kinds of kinds of activities that you're doing. Well, as I mentioned, we um, first started out with the, uh, the back cross breeding program. So we had, uh, um, through the generous uh, offer of many private landowners and other organizations and uh, municipalities, uh, we have uh, seven uh, what we call back cross orchards. Um, that last generation where we crossed with an American tree we were able to get um, pollen from our back cross program and pollinated Connecticut trees. So that way those trees are growing in Connecticut's uh, weather and uh, environment. Um, and then we're taking nuts from those trees and planting them in what we call seed orchards. Basically we've tested those the, the back cross trees as well with blight fungus to find the most resistant trees. And then we're taking nuts from them and um, doing another generation of seed orchards, and we have uh, three seed orchards started already. And how As many years does it take to get nuts from one of these trees? Yeah, about about five to eight years. They start flowering to get nuts from them. So yeah. And then at what point after that do they pick up the blight, or are they? Or I guess they pick up the blight along the way, but at some point yeah. it becomes overwhelmed. Basically, the trees have to have a wound in their bark for the blight fungus to get in there and start an infection. So it can be as early as a couple of years to, you know, sometimes it's later in life. Uh, we have found some trees that, you know, have grown pretty tall and look like they're resistant. Then eventually they do get a blight infection and start dying. So some trees have even grown to like 50 or, you know, 50 to 55 feet tall. Once a, once a tree shows signs of blight, do you try to isolate it from the other trees or remove it, or you just consider this yeah, as the, the natural sequence? Yeah, the blight's everywhere, so there's no way you're going to prevent it from getting the blight. So, uh, Have you intentionally located the orchards around the state, or are you, you know, is it opportunistic? You go where you find the right nope. conditions? Just wherever uh, people offer um, land to use to, uh, to host an orchard, um, chestnuts like acidic soil, so that's never a problem finding that in Connecticut. Yeah, pretty but easy they, in Connecticut, <laughs> right? But they also like well-draining soil, so they don't like uh, areas that have a lot of uh, wetness to it. So usually like um, well-draining hillsides are usually the best uh, for, for planting chestnut. And I mentioned we're doing the GCOs as well now too, so we have I think eight already started and we may start another four of them this year. So it sounds like this takes a lot of people to do all the things that you're doing. Is it, is the Connecticut chapter large? Um, we have about, um, I think, 175 members. Um, not all of them are active volunteers, but we even have other volunteers who are, are non-members, but 
you know, we'll take uh, any kind of offer for uh, for help that we can. Uh, we're also usually partnering with other land trusts and other organizations, so they have their own uh, supply of volunteers as well. So uh, it's quite a good network of uh, organizations working together to, to to carry through with this cause. And and are your activities seasonal? Are there times of year that you're busiest, or is it a year-round work? Our growing season uh, usually starts in um, like early May. We start planting. Um, then uh, in some places we do. Uh, manual pollinations. Um, and we're out looking for more uh, American chestnut trees growing in the forest. And that's usually in late June to early July, uh, since that's when they flower. And then there's usually a lull in the summertime. But then once the uh, September comes around, uh, we start uh, harvesting. So since um, wildlife like nuts, especially squirrels, we actually collect the burrs, uh, the, the structure that contains the nuts inside of them, about a week or two before they would actually open up on their own. So that way we can get to them before the, the squirrels can. Good idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We also do a lot of uh, outreach. Um, we were at the uh, Connecticut Flower and Garden Show uh, recently at the end of February. We usually go to the Durham Fair every year and find other you know, small local fairs to, uh, to host an exhibit at as well. Uh, the Connecticut Agriculture Plant Science Day, we, we usually host a table there too. So. If there are people listening to the podcast who want to get involved, how would they go about doing it? Definitely that we could always use more volunteers uh, for people who might want to host an orchard on their property. Um, and even people who want to become members of the American Chestnut Foundation to help support all our work. Um, they could definitely find more information on our website. Uh, the main foundation white uh, website is acf.org. Uh, the Connecticut chapter has their own little uh, web pages, uh, you know, underneath there. They could just look for, find a chapter and uh, uh, click on Connecticut and that'll give them more information specific to Connecticut. But uh, our chapter members come through people who um, become members of the American Chestnut Foundation and then specify that they want to belong to the uh, Connecticut chapter. So they join uh, the foundation first and then they are assigned or they're they assign themselves. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. The Chestnut Foundation has uh, 16 uh, state chapters. Sometimes two states get, get together, like Massachusetts and Rhode Island have one combined chapter. Yeah. Uh, Vermont and New Hampshire have a combined chapter. But uh, Connecticut has their own. New York has their own. Maine has their own state chapters. So, so do you think that within your lifetime, you will see healthy American chestnuts growing in Connecticut forests? <laughs> Yeah, probably not in my lifetime. We always say that uh, we're probably doing this for our grandchildren because we'll probably never see the, the fruits of our labor there. But, uh, but just knowing that we've made a difference in hopefully, you know, correcting some of the damage that's been done through, you know, through, um, through bringing in invasives that, um, that keeps us going forward. Well, that, you know, that actually is interesting. The, 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 I mean, the Chinese, Chinese chestnut was a devastating invasive for the American in chestnut, mm -hmm. right? But yeah. Connecticut forests are under assault from all kinds of invasives now. What impact yeah. does that have on these root systems and these seeds that you're trying to plant? Is it, is the, yeah. the ecosystem is really different. If, if you took the American chestnut out of the picture, the ecosystem would still be dramatically different today because of all the invasives in Connecticut. Yeah, especially since chestnut, once chestnut was on from the environment, oaks started thriving then too. So a lot of our you know uh, forests that are dominated with oaks right now are because of the loss of the chestnut. 
Um, then you have other species, like say the ashes you know, being lost in the forest. Uh, now there's a uh, beech leaf uh, disease too that they're saying is going to ruin all the beech in the forest. And uh, you know this this uh, is the uh, chestnut blight was the first real invasive species story that wiped out a, a species. And uh, you know here it is over a hundred years later, and we still haven't you know learned our lesson. Basically, we still keep bringing in more diseases here, um, and even with what we're trying to do with resistance to the blight fungus, uh, there may be something else that comes and attacks chestnuts by the time we uh, come up with a solution. Uh, down in the southern states, there's a, um, a disease called Phytophthora root rot, uh, which was also imported uh, from Asia and uh, affects the uh, roots. So all wow. the, uh, the root systems are even under attack down there. So, so how uh, left of themselves, these roots of the old chestnut trees that are sending up these shoots still, how long will they do that? Is that infinite? No, they've done some studies saying that eventually the root systems run out of energy, you know, and stop producing sprouts. Also with um, all the development these days, you know, developers will go in and clear a lot and not know what root systems are in there. You know, they may not even recognize chestnuts. So development, we're still losing a lot of chestnut root systems uh, anytime there's development. That's kind of another reason why we wanted the germplasm conservation orchards is so we can conserve you know, some of these American chestnuts. So what's so. the chance that if I went and walked, there's a there's an old church camp, maybe 20 or so acres across the street from me, it's heavily forested now, probably was pasture at one time. What's the chance that if I went through a walk through there in the spring, I would see chestnut sprouts? Actually, it's pretty good. You can still find a lot of chestnut sprouts in the forest. One of the places where I found the most number was up in uh, Salisbury uh, along the uh, Appalachian Trail. You can see so many chestnut sprouts there, you get an actual feel for what it would have been like with one out of every four tree being a chestnut since there's so many sprouts there. But there are still isolated pockets. But uh, remember, a lot of the forests in Connecticut today are reforested farmland. So there may not have been chestnuts growing there when the blight came through. So in order to find chestnuts today, it had to be an area where there's still chestnut trees standing back at the turn of the 20th century there. So certainly gives me something to keep an eye out for on my walks this mm. spring. And again, I want to remind people that if you want to get involved in this multi-generation effort to save the American chestnut tree, there are three ways you can do it. You can volunteer become a member and donate to the American Chestnut Foundation and belong to the Connecticut chapter, and you can plant an orchard. What's involved in planting an orchard if someone yeah. wanted to do a, a seed orchard? We're concerned on germplasm conservation orchards mostly now. Yeah. And um, basically we're planting about 100 trees to an acre. But if it's a smaller size, if it's a half acre area that uh, allows us to plant, we could always scale it down to like, well, 50 trees. You know, or people with more area, more land, can uh, we can even scale it up too. So, um, so if anybody like said, has a well-drained, full sun yep. or close to it, half exactly. or whole acre that yeah. they want to donate to a crusade to save a great American tree, you're the person they ought to get in touch with, right? Yep, exactly. Yep. On our state uh, chapter um, web pages, there's a place for that says contact us. And uh, it'll send us an email. We'll be able to commute through email, uh, communicate through emails. Yeah, that's excellent. Jack Swat, president of the Connecticut chapter of the American Chestnut Foundation. Thank you so much for coming on Grading the Nutmeg and telling us about 
uh, you know, this is just literally doing God's work. It's terrific. Thank you very much for having me. Love to tell people more about the chestnut and hopefully get more people involved. So thank you. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Jack Swat and the Connecticut chapter of the American Chestnut Foundation. To hear more Connecticut history stories, subscribe to Grading the Nutmeg on your favorite podcast app or at gradingthenutmeg.libsyn.com. And for a timely piece of Connecticut history in your inbox every day, subscribe to Today in Connecticut History at todayinctshistory.com. There's an inviting world of Connecticut history, culture, and historic preservation in Connecticut Explored magazine, too. So subscribe at ctexplored.org. I'm Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg. Thank you.